Well, friends, I am actually kind of glad that we're in this space and some of you are watching me in the sanctuary or at home because uh, this kind of feels more like a courtroom. And the Apostle Paul is on trial. He is falsely accused of teaching against the Torah, God's law. He is falsely accused of subverting the Roman authorities. And he is falsely accused of teaching eccentric ideas that he has made up himself that are against Christ. And I am here today to defend him. Because, ladies and gentlemen, he is innocent of these charges. And I have prepared my defense. As I begin my defense, let me bring you up to speed on how we got here. Uh, and if you'd like to follow your own evidence, uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. You can see how we got here. Last week was the conclusion of Paul's missionary journeys. And despite multiple warnings that suffering was going to be on his way, Paul headed to Jerusalem to get there in time for Pentecost. And the rest of Acts is essentially... Paul's passion narrative. And we had Luke's gospel that concluded with the passion or the sufferings of Christ. Now Luke's second volume, Acts, is going to conclude with the passion or sufferings of Paul. And so Paul makes it to Jerusalem. He meets with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church and reported all that God did among the Gentiles and they praised God together, right? That's where we left off last week. And that's where Paul learns that there is a false rumor going on about him. In verse 20 of chapter 21, they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So the Jerusalem elders, they say thousands of Jews have believed, but there's a problem. They are zealous for the law, the Torah, God's law. And why are they so zealous? Well, you need to understand the context. It's about 57 AD. And at this time, Jewish nationalism has been on the rise. Basically, the Jews have had it with the Roman Gentile oppression of their people and their country. And as the world around them was growing increasingly Greek and Roman, Jews wanted to conserve their way of life. We need to keep kosher. We need to keep the Sabbath. We need to attend the festivals. We need to offer sacrifices in the temple. Losing these things would be like losing your culture, losing your identity, losing your faith itself. And so all across the country, whether they were Christian Jews or many non-Christian many non Jews, there is a strong pro-law, pro-Israel, anti-Gentile, anti-Roman sentiment that had been growing. In fact, there were many who were resorting to violence, becoming zealots, and doing these little assassinations here and there to try to overthrow the government. And actually, many people in the Jerusalem church were feeling this anti-Gentile sentiment, as those in the culture were feeling. They let the hatred in the culture infiltrate the church. Oh, how easy that happens. And now people have heard 
a false rumor that Paul is going around the world telling Jews everywhere, not the ones just in Israel, but all around the world, the Gentiles, that they should abandon the law. God forbid. You know, and we knew that Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem, right? That's all we heard last week. And isn't it sad that Paul's initial problem in Jerusalem isn't with Rome or isn't with any of the religious authorities. It's actually with people in church. People who have spread false information about him and have damaged his reputation. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul is a victim of slander. And I'm sure you can believe that because you know how easy things spread in the world. Spreading false information is so easy, so damaging to do. Um, in fact, it's even easier in our time, right? We post that thing online, we forward that email, we send that text message. We don't confirm whether what's being shared is true. And so we quickly damage others. And you know how hurtful that can be. And the Apostle Paul, this is what happened to him by his fellow Jewish Christians. And they are outraged at him for something that's totally false. And who knows what they might do. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that Paul is innocent of all of this. And let's deal with the first charge. This is my first point. The gospel is not anti-law, but the fulfillment of the law. It's not anti-law, but the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the gospel, it's not anti-Israel, but it's the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, to his people. And the first witnesses... I would like to call to the stand are James and the elders of the Jerusalem church because they come up with a plan to prove that Paul is innocent because they knew that was true. Look what they do. Verse 23, chapter 21. They say to him, There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So what's going on here? There are four Jewish Christians who have made a vow to God. This was an Old Testament custom that Jewish Christians still continued in the New Covenant. And the elders of the church, they want Paul to pay for these sacrifices, which would have been seen as a, a wonderfully good deed. And, uh, and they also want Paul to join in these purification rites, to have ritual purity in the temple. And so even though we know that Paul would accommodate his lifestyle when he was with Gentiles so that he could have table fellowship with them, uh, he was still a practicing Jew himself. And the act of purification would show that he still upheld the law for the Jews. And so then James and the elders give Paul some assurance. Look what he says in verse 25. As for the Gentile believers... We have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, this is a reference to the Jerusalem Council from Acts chapter 15. And if you weren't with us, let me remind you uh, what happened there. The church came to an agreement on the, this issue of uniting the Jews and Gentiles in the church. And essentially it said that they both could be saved as they are. The Jewish, the Jewish people, they can be saved as Jews and be practicing Jews. And the Gentiles, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jewish. They can be saved as Gentiles. But the Gentiles did have to, have to uphold the four requirements just mentioned so that they could preserve table fellowship with the Jews who still kept the law and wanted to be 
pure in all those things. Are you with me? Okay. Some of you are like, no, I, I didn't follow any of that. Okay, well, you have to go back to my sermon on Acts 15 and get more of the context. But if, in fact, Paul was teaching the Jews around the world to abandon the law, he would actually be in breach of the Jerusalem council. But James and the elders of the church, they know that this is false. This is not what Paul is doing. So Paul agrees to their plan. Let's show the people I still uphold the law to the Jew. So, verse 26, the next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul has now gone to great lengths to show that he is innocent of all of these false accusations. And then something terrible happened. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. And they stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. Friends, here is a great tragedy. At the very moment that this whole seven-day purification ritual is about over, at the very moment that Paul is showing, I am innocent and I support the law and all of this, at that moment, that is when this false charge happens. That is when he is accused of teaching everyone against the temple and the law and the people of God. Now, these accusers, these are not from the church. These are non-Christian Jews from the province of Asia. And likely they are from Ephesus. Where if you remember, Paul calls, Paul calls that huge riot to break out. And you might recall that he had started in the synagogue like he normally does, but he got kicked out of there, and then he started meeting in a house right next to the synagogue. He opened up a church right next to the synagogue in Ephesus. It's like when Ray Kroc opened up the McDonald's next to the original McDonald's. It was like there is a, this was a, a, a tension, a conflict. And so these people, they are mad at Paul. And so this is their chance to get even with him. And they say, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. Now this accusation, this brings Paul's journey nearly full circle. Because this is essentially the same charge that the Sanhedrin gave to Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. The same one where Paul was there, giving his approval, collecting the coats. He knew the charge that was against Stephen. And now he hears the same words that Stephen had heard. And he has to wonder, knowing all the prophecies about his suffering, he has to wonder, am I going to have the same faith as Stephen did? Am I going to be killed now for this faith? And so the accusers, they continue. And they say, besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into now, Luke is careful to show us that this accusation is, again, false. They had assumed something that happened that did not happen. And this was a serious accusation. Uh, Gentiles were not allowed into the inner courts of the temple. In fact, there were signs. And, by the way, archaeologists have dug up two of these signs that they found these. And these signs in the temple, they said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade, which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And even Rome, 
the government, they were prepared to even execute a Roman who would cross this boundary. This was a serious thing about keeping peace in the, in the land. And it was very emotionally charged. In fact, even today, when I was in Israel, there, there is a lot of uh, tension about who can visit the Temple Mount at certain parts in certain parts of the Temple Mount at certain times. Non-Muslims are not allowed into uh, the famous mosque that is there. And once when I was there, there was a group of people that were shouting loudly at each other. And it was a little terrifying because someone was there when they where they weren't supposed to be. And so there's these Jews and Palestinians, they are yelling at each other. And I'm like, i got to get out of here. This is freaky. And the police have to get involved. And it's, it's a big deal. Even today, laws about who can be where on the temple is a big deal. And the police are almost always ready to respond. They're like watching this place. In the same way, that's what was going on 2,000 years ago. The Roman soldiers were always watching what was going on because there was so much tension. And so if what these Asian Jews say is true, Paul has committed an offense that is punishable by death. He has desecrated the temple, which is like desecrating God himself. And so this is a huge offense. So that's why it says in verse 30, the whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Jerusalem, they dragged that great, the great missionary, the great apostle Paul. They dragged him out of the temple of God. That was supposed to represent and be where God's presence dwelt. So sadly, they reject the gospel. And it says immediately the gates were shut. The gospel and its main apostle are shut out of the temple. And this is the last time that we hear of the temple in the book of Acts. And in 70 AD, you know, roughly 13 years from this event, it was destroyed just as Jesus had prophesied and predicted that it would be. Remember when Jesus died, it said the curtain was torn in two, right? It was torn in two. And this was a symbol of access to the presence of God. And then Paul, Paul had said in Ephesians that Christ had torn down the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Probably having in mind these barriers in the temple that were there. These barriers are no longer there. They're torn down by God in Christ. But now the people, they've shut the doors of the temple. See, God wants to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. But humanity tries to keep putting it back up. And that's where all things go wrong. The temple doors are shut, and now they're trying to kill Paul. And ladies and gentlemen, this is an innocent man. The Roman soldiers, they had to stop the violence, so they chained Paul. And from this point on, he will be held unjustly in custody. All because people thought he was anti-law, anti-Jewish, and they could not have been further from the truth. In Paul's defense speech that we heard, he said he studied under the most renowned rabbi of the time. He was thoroughly trained in the law. And because he thought Christians were desecrating the law, he had persecuted them even unto death. If there was ever a person who was so zealous for the law, it was Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He would be the last person to be anti-law or anti-Jewish. And he, he only changed. He only changed because he met Jesus in a divine revelation. But it, I think we need to see it was also his... His zeal for the law that in some ways led him right to Jesus in a surprising twist. N.T. Wright says this, 
his deeply Jewish, deeply Orthodox, deeply respected birth, his background, training, and zeal led him straight into the path of the Messiah. And he discovered that it was Jesus. God revealed to Paul that he was fulfilling all of his promises to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and yes, even to Moses. And it's through the Messiah Jesus. So friends, the gospel, it's the good news that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, has fulfilled God's covenant promises. He was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. He was raised to life and made Lord over all so that the promised blessing of God that he promised all the way back to Abraham, that that blessing would now reach to all the world, the Gentiles. So this is a fulfillment of the law and prophets, not in contradiction to them. So, ladies and gentlemen, he is innocent of the charge, that he is anti-law. Rather, his gospel is the fulfillment of the law. Let me deal now with the second charge. The gospel is not a threat to the governing authority. The gospel is not a threat to the governing authority. And the second witness I want to call now to the stand is a Roman soldier named Claudius Lysias. And he discovers that Paul is no political revolutionary. Chapter 21, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? So a crazy thing happened. About three years prior to this event, there was an Egyptian man who claimed to be a prophet, gathered all types of people around him. He said, meet me on the Mount of Olives. All the walls are going to come down, and we're going to rush in and overtake, overtake Israel, overtake Jerusalem. But Rome heard about the plot. They confronted them, they defeated them, they killed some of them, put some of them in prison, but this Egyptian man escaped. And so this terrorist is out there, and so now Claudius thinks that he's got, you know, the public enemy number one. He's caught the guy. Aren't you this Egyptian who attacked everybody? And so this is Luke, this is Luke, our author's chance, to show that Paul and the gospel and the church, they're not a part of some movement to overthrow political authority. In fact, biblical scholar Craig Keener, he says, demonstrating that Paul was not subversive to Roman political order is one of the primary themes of the defense speeches, of which there will be several more before we are done with Acts. So Luke is careful to show. It wasn't Paul who started the riot. Paul didn't do that. Uh, he was, it was, that was the Jews from Asia. Paul is not this Egyptian revolutionary. He was not a zealot. In fact, he goes on to claim his Roman citizenship in this passage. And Paul, we know, he submitted to the authorities, he submitted to wherever, wherever punishment was on his way, except when they told him to stop preaching the gospel. Okay? And we know he taught his churches to submit to the authorities as well. I could bring out the evidence of Romans 13 and Titus 3, but you can all look at that evidence yourselves in your own Bibles. You have that with you today. And Luke is going to show you, time and time again, that Paul's sharing of the gospel... It's rejected by the Jewish people, but it's almost always defended by the Roman government. They're supported by Rome. And so Rome, they can find nothing wrong with him. Remember, just as Pilate found nothing wrong with Jesus, in the same way, Rome is going to find nothing wrong with Paul. He is not a threat. So after Paul's defense speech, he's taken into the barracks. They're about to flog him to try to get what they think is the truth out of him. And it says in verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, 
Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, Paul brings up a very serious and good point. Uh, in fact, Cicero, had, Cicero the Roman uh, philosopher, uh, he had said to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him in abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder. So this is why this is always a big deal when Roman citizenship is brought up in the Bible. And Paul's not ashamed of the fact that he's a Roman citizen. He's pretty much always willing to use it for his advantage or for the gospel's advantage whenever it comes up. And so while he, uh, in some ways, protests the legality of what is happening to him, our author Luke, he shows us that the gospel is no threat. It's not a violent movement against the state. And Christians are taught to love their neighbor, to love their enemy, to submit to their authorities, to pay the taxes, to honor their emperor, and to care for the poor. And so wherever, wherever church, wherever we find ourselves, we, we ought to show the state that we are no threat. That we want to cooperate with and submit to them for the common good of the people. That we preach a mess, message of peace, of love, of care and concern for neighbors. So ladies and gentlemen, Paul is innocent of this charge that he is gospel is subversive to the governing authorities. It is not true. Now finally, I want to show you that Paul is no eccentric false teacher. This is my final point. Paul's gospel came directly from God and is in agreement with the teachings of Jesus. Paul's gospel came directly from God and is in agreement with the teachings of Jesus. He's not teaching just something made up. You know, before he met Jesus, he was the church's greatest persecutor. He was killing people for believing this stuff. I mean, what would make somebody do a 180 like that? Have you ever talked to a religious fundamentalist? Are they easy to persuade? <laughs> no! This is, they're, they're not persuadable. This is what the kind of guy Paul was. And so only a dramatic revelation from heaven could change his mind. And you heard his testimony about a, how a bright light came from heaven. And you heard the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. And from that moment on, he was a follower of Jesus, a teacher of the gospel. And then it says, after a while, he returned to Jerusalem, and he was praying at the temple. He falls into a trance, and he hears the Lord speaking to him. And it says, uh, the Lord says, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And then Paul essentially replies, hey, they know my, my life of persecution. Or, or in other words, they, I could have a good ministry here, Lord. Like They, they know that I've gone from, from this way to this way. I could, have, I could teach the gospel here. But the Lord says, they're not going to accept your testimony. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And at that moment in his speech, when Paul mentions this pro-Gentile sentiment, that's when everything again goes haywire. It rouses the crowd and they say, get rid of this guy. In other words, let's kill this guy. You know, Luke has been careful to show that Paul's treatment is very similar to Jesus's. You know, the crowd says, get rid of him. And these are the same words that Jesus Christ heard 25 years ago when the people were presented with remember, Barabbas or Jesus and they said, take him away. Take, get rid of that guy. Get rid of Jesus. Paul's hearing the same words. Just like Jesus, he's rejected by the people, his own people. And, and people might have thought that Paul's imprisonment, Paul's all this stuff happening to Paul, they might have thought this is a sign that maybe this guy is a false teacher. Maybe he is not blessed by God. Maybe he is not someone who God is protecting and leading. But Luke is careful to show, don't forget, the same stuff happened to Jesus. This is not a sign that God is not with him. 
God will eventually vindicate all his servants. And so there's no disagreement between Jesus and Paul. You know, some people, they, they want to put a dividing line, I think, between Paul and Jesus. You know, it's kind of like some people, they want to say, well, the Old, the Old Testament God is a different God of the New Testament, and they put a dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's totally false. It's the same God. And I, I think some people, they said they want to put a dividing line between Paul and Jesus. In fact, some people will say, you know, Paul came along and messed everything up. He taught something different than Jesus. But that's not true either. Paul heard his gospel directly from Jesus. And his teachings were in harmony with Jesus Christ. You know, even in our Bibles, there's a strange verse in 2 Peter that says where Peter talks about uh, the letters of Paul and how some people were twisting them uh, for their own disruption. He said, ignorant and unstable people twist these words. They're hard to understand, but ignorant people twist them to their own disruption. So for 2,000 years, Paul's letters have been hard to understand, and people have twisted them and misused them in all kinds of ways. And although that that has been the case, friends, let's never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ commissioned Paul himself, and that Jesus Christ set apart Paul for a specific mission, and his teachings and his Gospels are, to are, are, are in harmony rather with the Gospels of Jesus. I think John Stott sums up this point. Paul's point was that those features of his faith, which had changed, especially his acknowledgement of Jesus and his Gentile mission, these were not his own eccentric ideas. They had been directly revealed to him from heaven. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Paul is an innocent man. He is not anti-law. Rather, his gospel is a fulfillment of the law. He does not teach subversiveness to the political authorities. Rather, he has shown himself who submits to the authorities. And he is not teaching his own eccentric false ideas against Jesus. Rather, he was commissioned by Jesus himself. Unfortunately, this will not be the last time that Paul has to defend himself in the gospel. More defense speeches, more trials will be on the way as we journey towards the end of Acts. And if the life of Jesus is our model, we can trust that God's servants, whether Paul is going to get justice or not, whether he's going to be declared guilty or innocent, that does not necessarily matter in this life. Because we know whether it happens in this life or in the next, God will vindicate his servants. And we think about as we face trials of all kinds, I think we can trust that God will protect us, God will give us strength, God will give us the words to say when we need it, just as Jesus promised. When you face these things, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say when you need it. And we can trust that He will be our mighty fortress. Even if we end up in a fortress or a dungeon of some kind, God is still our protector there. And, and until then, we preach the gospel. Until it goes out to the end of the world. Until Jesus comes again. And so may the Lord keep us faithful.